we're going to force goodness into 2021 as soon as we possibly can. Uh, but the reality is we are in an unmitigated disaster. We're just in a disaster. In fact, I saw this uh, meme this week, and it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. So 2020, worst year ever, but 2021 says, hey, 2020, hold my beer. <laughs> we are just getting started. Watch this. And here we are. In fact, last week when we started the comeback series, I said this. I said, hope for a comeback is most needed at the bottom of a setback. And I actually thought last Sunday was the bottom of our setback. <laughs> I actually thought that. <laughs> you know, we knew the COVID numbers were going to get worse from the Christmas and New Year's rush. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Just terribly sad things going on there. But we thought we were kind of scraping the bottom. And then Wednesday happens. It was stunning and shocking. This happened just three days after last Sunday. And this happened. 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 It's a police officer being crushed. January 6th will be known as one of the darkest days in U.S. history. U.S. Capitol was attacked by our own citizens seeking to overturn a U.S. election. I can't even believe I just read that. So we have far more to come back from than I even imagined one week ago today. So the question I've been wrestling with since Wednesday is, are we at the bottom now? You know, you. You think about the, the storyline arc that we talked about last week when we started this series, that there's a setback, and then there's this big adventure, and then there's a dramatic fall followed by a dramatic comeback. And I thought last Sunday we were at the bottom of that dramatic fall, but no, there was a long, long way to go. And I'll be honest, there's a long way to go from here if we're not careful. Are we at the bottom yet? I honestly don't know. Now, I try to always be optimistic, right? About the present, I always try to find the best. I'm always optimistic about the future. In fact, I have an optimistic, redemptive theology. I've gotten in a whole lot of trouble over this over the years. I have an optimistic, redemptive theology that the broad arc of human history is getting better and better. And yes, there are setbacks, and we're experiencing a setback right now, uh, unlike anything in my lifetime, for sure. Probably unlike anything in the last 150 years when history is going to retell this story. There are always setbacks, but the large arc of, of human history and God's work here on the earth is that things are getting better. I've preached that countless times here, and I will continue. I have preached countless times here that the best is yet to come, and I still believe that. This is not discouraging me from that conviction. I still very much believe the big picture is getting better, regardless of the setback. That is so dramatic. But as I stand here today with you all, I am so disappointed in our nation. I am so disappointed in our nation's leaders from both parties. And I am most disappointed by the, by the evangelical church. I am most disappointed by the evangelical church. It's heartbreaking for me to say that, but it's true. Wednesday, January 6th was essentially an evangelical church event and showed the total failure of the evangelical church movement. On January 6th, the worst of politics got in bed with the worst of man-made religion, and this is what happens. It's happened before in world history, and it will sadly happen again. 
Now, let me be clear. National politics is expected to be self-serving and power-hungry. That's just the deal. It's what you sign up for when you sign up for national politics. It's going to be self-serving and power-hungry and bitterly divisive, and that's a given in U.S. politics. But to intermingle the self-serving and power-hungry politics with self-serving and power-hungry evangelical religion, and you get the disaster we saw on January 6th. The evangelical church as a movement shares much of the blame in Wednesday's tragedy. An attack on our capital, killing five people, including a police officer, 60 other police officers wounded. The evangelical church movement shares much of the blame, and it has to be said. Now, before I get too far down this trail, I want to make a few things crystal clear. I love deeply love evangelical Christians. I would even say most of my friends are evangelical Christians. A lot of my family is evangelical Christians. Most of them are decent and kind and honorable people. Some are not clearly, which is true of every group, right? Every group probably is largely good, and there's a few just terrible human beings in that mix. That's true of every single group. And what we have done over the course of uh, the last several years, probably longer, is we take the edges of these groups and define each other by those edges, and bitterness rises, and tension rises, and violence rises. But I deeply love evangelical Christians. Some evangelical Christians, and I've heard from many of them, despise what happened on January 6th, despise it. In fact, they're grieved by the part their religion has played, and to their credit, many have come and spoken out against what happened on Wednesday. My gut says, okay, you know, it took this, you know, a little bit too little, a little bit too late, but that's the cynic in me. But I would just say, hey, that's a good start. If you come out and say this was wrong, deeply, deeply wrong, and we have some soul-searching to do, you have my respect. And it's never too late for redemption, right? No matter how far a person or a movement falls, God's a God of redemption. He's a God of restoration. He's a God of second chances, a God of new starts. So this evangelical movement that you know, may have some bright spots historically, some good that was done, it has become so terrible and so toxic. But there is redemption. There is restoration ahead by God's grace. God's grace is for everyone including his own misguided people. So I want to be clear, when we talk about comeback here over January and February, and this series has just been extended now a couple of weeks, uh, as we talk about a comeback, we're not just talking about a comeback from a novel virus, although we are feeling the weight and the depth and the pain of this virus, over 4,000 dead per day. Nurses, hospital workers, medical professions are coming home every day in tears from the burden that they're bearing. We need to come back from the virus, and I think a comeback will happen. We'll get out of this year-end surge. We'll get out of this winter surge between uh, people contracting the disease and vaccines. We will get to a point of herd immunity. I have no idea when. Hopefully 2021. We're working and praying toward that end, right? We need to come back from the novel coronavirus, but that's not all that we're talking about when we say comeback. When we say comeback, we're not just talking about a comeback from a political nightmare, which is, again, the worst we've had in our country in 150 years. 
When we talk about a comeback, we're not just talking about a comeback from racial division. And what happened on Wednesday further highlighted the racial polarization in our country. Don't have time to detail that. When we talk about a comeback, we really need to focus on ourselves. And this is the key here. When we talk about a comeback, it's not a comeback for them. It's not a comeback for things out there. It's not a comeback for circumstances. It's a comeback in our own hearts and in our own faith. When we talk about a comeback, we need to focus on ourselves, the people of God who have lost their way. And it is so clear right now, the people of God have lost their way. And I'm telling you, that's what the Bible's all about. The Bible is about the story of God's people losing their way and the story of God's people finding their way through a great comeback. That's what the Bible is talking about. So as we kind of hold our Bibles and somehow think that the Bible stands in some judgment of the world, that is incorrect. 100% incorrect. The Bible does not talk about the Egyptians and the Moabites and Midianites and Ammonites and Philistines and Amalekites or the Persians or Syrians or Assyrians or Babylonians, Greeks, or Romans. Those are characters in the biblical story, but God always focuses on his people. And in the Old Testament, the Jews called themselves God's people, and so the Old Testament focuses on God's people, their failure and their comeback. That's what the Bible's all about. In the New Testament, it talks about our failure as a church when early on we did not embrace all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all ethnicities. There's a crisis in the New Testament, a deep failure followed by an incredible comeback. The Bible talks about us, not the world, us, people of God. The Bible is the history of God's people losing their way, then making their way back by his grace and by his forgiveness. We need to focus on us Because we're the problem here, particularly evangelical Christians. We're the problem here. Here's an example in God's Word. We'll go to the Old Testament. This this great temple was rebuilt, built. Solomon's temple built supposedly for the glory of God, supposedly for God's name. But there was a warning when that temple was built. It's a very famous passage. Some of you might even have it memorized. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and restore their land. That's talking about God's people. Every single time in my life when I've heard that verse quoted, it's about the church judging the world. You need to humble yourself. You need to pray. You need to turn from your wicked ways, world, and come back to God. This verse is talking about God's people who have lost their way. It's God's people who need to turn from their wicked ways. And that's true right now. God's people need to turn from their wicked ways. Here's a New Testament passage, 1 Corinthians 5, 12. The Apostle Paul, the founder of a church, is writing to this church that had lost their way. He says, listen, it isn't our responsibility to judge the outsiders. It's not our responsibility to judge others, but it certainly is our responsibility to those inside the church who are sinning. January 6th made it very evident, painfully evident, that it is those inside the church who are sinning. So when we experience something as terribly horrific as Wednesday, January 6th, we need to ask ourselves, what is our problem? How did we contribute? What could we have done differently? Where have we derailed ourselves, and how could we come back from such an incredible failure? There was a recent article in The Atlantic, which I know is not a Christian periodical by any stretch, but uh, one of the first articles they published after the riot was entitled, A Christian Insurrection. 
And I just want you to sit with that title. Again, it's barely believable. A Christian insurrection. Here's a quote from the article. The January 6th riot will have far more influence in shaping the reputation of Christianity for the outside world than denominational giants. In fact, you pick all the great Christian leaders, all the great Christian movements, all the great Christian denominations, nothing will shape the reputation of the Christian church like Wednesday, January 6th. So heartbreaking to say that. But that is a failure of the evangelical church. And why do I say that? It is the, the absolute best, most accurate estimate of who that crowd was on January 6th was 90 plus percent evangelical Christians. 90 plus percent of evangelical Christians were at that capital. 90 plus percent of the people who stormed that capital, evangelical Christians. That's the best estimate. Causing so much devastation, harm, and even death. So what is the evangelical church? For those of you who might be kind of new to the church world, what is the evangelical church? You might have heard evangelicalism kind of thrown around. You might have heard that word, but what is the evangelical church? There are four kind of essential markers of the evangelical church, and this is directly from the National Association of Evangelicals, which is sort of the north star of evangelical political movement. So this is right off of their website. So I'm not making this up. It's not accusatory. It's what the evangelical leaders say evangelicalism is. There are four things. One is biblicism. Biblicism is a veneration of the Bible as the statutory word of God. I don't have time to detail all these words, but it is a veneration of the Bible, almost to the point of being as holy as God himself. There's crucicentrism, which is a non-word used in church, happens all the time, right? Crucicentrism is a, the cross of Christ is the main focus of the faith, that Jesus died to forgive our sins. That's the main focus of evangelicalism is the cross. Conversionism, calling unbelievers to convert to the Christian faith through a public confession, conversionism. And then fourth, activism. Activism is a call to preach the gospel, to make converts, and to reform the culture. Now, if you've grown up in church, these things might be very familiar, particularly if you've grown up in an evangelical church, these four things might be very familiar. So let's talk about each one very briefly. Biblicism. It might seem a good thing, right? It seems a good thing to value the Bible as God's Word. I value the Bible as God's Word. I mean, part of my vocation is studying God's Word, preaching God's Word. I love God's Word. I've been studying it since I was 14 years old, right? There's so much truth and life in the stories of God's Word and the message and what it reveals about God, what it reveals about us, and particularly what it reveals about Jesus. So keep in mind that a, a proper way to, to approach God's Word is that it is all about Jesus, and through Jesus, we read the Old Testament, and through Jesus, we read the New Testament, and we can have a good understanding of what the Bible really is all about. But what I want to really drill into all of us is that the Bible is, is an expression of the Word, but the real Word of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God. And the Bible is ultimately clear about that, right? John 1, 14, the Word, the expression of God, the Word became flesh and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Jesus is the full expression of God, not the text. 
Jesus is the true word of God whom we get to know in the trustworthy text of our Bibles. That is so key to understand. We don't worship the Bible. The Bible is not as holy as God. When we start worshiping the Bible or considering the Bible as holy as God, we run into some real problems. I've detailed that just the last 10 years, so you know, don't worry about it. Crucicentrism. The cross is the center. Now, that seems sort of understandable, right? In churches, there's crosses everywhere. We've got three crosses here on our campus prominently displayed. Our original cross from 1969 is in the West Campus. Our 1978 cross, when we built the, the chapel in our uh, original campus, is hanging right outside these doors, 80 feet away. The new cross was you know, dedicated when we built this campus in, in 2005, and it's right outside over there by that fountain. So to, to lift up the cross as a symbol of Christianity, or even the symbol of Christianity, it is not necessarily a problem. The cross is the full expression of love, and this is what I want us to understand. When we wear a cross, see a cross, put it on a church, it is supposed to say to the world, we follow a sacrificial, loving Savior who gave it all to love and forgive us. That's what it's supposed to say. John 13, 1. Jesus, with his disciples, in his final hour, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his earthly ministry, and now he loved them to the very end. That's the cross. The cross is the expression that God loves to the very end. There is no limit to God's love, including the crucifixion, the murder of his own son, the full expression of God was murdered on that cross. That's the extent to which God loves us. He loves us to the end. Even when his disciples were running away screaming as Jesus was being arrested, Jesus says, I'm still loving them to the very end. I'm still loving them with my life. That's what the cross says. And so, yes, the cross is, is central to the Christian message, but that was a 36-hour event from the time Jesus died to the time he rose again, that was a 36-hour event. We are a resurrection church. We are a resurrection family of faith. If the cross is what is truly central and that's it, we have a whole different theology that emerges. Again, I have no time to talk about it. It actually becomes, in some respects, a theology of death and violence when the cross is the center in an inappropriate way. We are people of resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. We are a church of life where the love that Jesus expressed at the crucifixion is a love that eternally continues by the resurrected Christ who lives right now eternally expressing his continued love through us. That's the culture of the church. So the love of God expressed through the crucifixion lives eternally through the resurrected Christ who lives eternally in us. How about conversionism? It seems a good thing to call people to faith in Jesus Christ, right? If we believe that Jesus is the full expression of God, we believe, therefore, that God is a loving and forgiving heavenly Father who is always for us, particularly looking after the poor and the sick and the friendless and the outcast, believing that Jesus is the very love of God who forgives us and brings us into a right relationship with him by grace alone, now and forever. That's a good thing to believe that. It's actually a life-changing thing to believe that, which is why we are constantly called to believe. John 1, 12, but to all who believe him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's important to call people to believe because when people believe in Jesus, they then believe that God is loving and forgiving and with them and kind and gracious. 
Not this distant, angry God just punishing them for every bad you know, deed in their life. It's life-changing. When we believe in Jesus, our whole life becomes centered on the love of God and then giving that love away. So belief is an invitation to experience life as a dearly loved child of God, not to become a member of the right religion, which is where it gets skewed. You know, say this sinner's prayer, become a part of this religion that's right and good and moral and fill in the blanks. That's where it gets off track. How about activism? Seems a good thing to call people to action, right? Our faith should result in action that has an impact on the world around us, a good impact, but I would caution us. When we turn activism into political movements motivated to empower ourselves, we have lost our way. Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. When we talk about an active faith, faith, we're talking about an active love, a life that lives to love. That's the most important thing in terms of how we live our life and the active nature of our faith. It's how we love. That's all that matters. So the activistic movement of Jesus was about mercy to those in need, justice for the oppressed, and loving everyone everywhere. Evangelicalism has missed the mark. Evangelical Christianity as a movement is misguided. And that's the most kind word I could use. And Wednesday was the clearest evidence to date that evangelical Christianity is misguided. I just had no idea it would get that bad. I mean, listen, I've been waving my arms for a decade about evangelical Christianity. And there are those with a much bigger voice than I have who've been waving their arms about evangelical Christianity for 20 and sometimes 30 years. There's a problem. People, there's a problem. There's a theology problem that's pretty deep, pretty serious. There's a cultural problem that's probably even more serious. There's a problem. There's a problem. And, and for anybody who expresses that concern about evangelical theology or evangelical culture, I mean, there is a heavy, heavy price to pay. But still, I had no idea it would result in this. And this image behind me just says it all. That is one of the saddest images I have ever seen. It's hard for me to even look at it. And I can't tell you whether I I feel more sorrow or rage looking at that picture. I want you to hear something. A cross was carried to the Capitol for the purpose of seizing political power I'm going to say that again. A cross was carried to the Capitol for the purpose of seizing political power. Now you have to feel the sad and terrible irony of that because the story of Jesus is about Jesus entering a Capitol with thousands of supporters. You know the story is Palm Sunday. Jesus entered his Capitol with thousands of supporters to lay down his life in service to those in need. But this crowd went to the Capitol to take power for themselves, and they used a cross to do it. Jesus also went to his Capitol with thousands of supporters and was the victim 
of violence. He didn't fight back. This crowd went to the capital and perpetrated violence and used a cross to do it. Jesus also went to his capital city with thousands of supporters and submitted himself to authorities. This crowd went to the capital to subvert the authorities. Jesus also went to his capital with thousands of supporters and was shouted at by the mob. This crowd went to the capital as the shouting mob and used a cross to do it. Jesus went to a capital and selflessly gave up all the power of heaven on that cross and they used a cross to selfishly seize earthly power. There cannot be anything more wrong than that. No way in hell does that cross belong at that rally. It is a, a defamation of the cross and a defamation of the name of Jesus. And I cannot tell you how sad I am that the very faith through which I came to know Jesus was largely the cause of the near collapse of our democracy, defiling the name of Christ himself. Influential, influential Christian author Ed Stetzer wrote this on the Christianity Today blog. It has now been picked up by a lot of news sources. He wrote a, an article called, This is the Day of Reckoning for Evangelical Christians. And I want us to feel the weight of that right now. If you sort of categorize yourself as an evangelical Christian, if you sort of have, uh, have sort of, you know, floated in the evangelical stream, I want you to know this is your day of reckoning. This is our day of reckoning. Here's a summary of the article. This is the day the evangelical movement reaped what it has been sowing for the better part of 50 years. And there's a reason why over the last 12 years, the number of practicing Christians in America has dropped from 50% to 25%. There's a reason why people are running away from Christianity. This is the reason. It's this theology, it's this culture now, I have to celebrate something here. Many, many good people, good and decent evangelical people were at the speech on January 6th. Many good evangelical people made the march to the Capitol on January 6th. And when the violence started and the insurrection started, they left, and they left sad. They left with their head hung down, and they left posting how embarrassed they were to be a part of it, and some admitting that this was the worst decision of their lives. And I have a lot of respect, so much respect for people who are waking up to this day of reckoning and saying, you know what, I may have been part of the problem. And it's time for a change. So are we at the bottom now? Are we at rock bottom? I don't know, but I could tell you with certainty what the way back is. I can tell you with absolute certainty that the way back couldn't be more simple. Couldn't be simpler. The way back is to simply follow Jesus. Simply follow Jesus, right? We can applaud that. That means do not follow political leaders. Follow Jesus. It means do not follow religious leaders. Attend their churches, listen to their podcasts, read their books, but don't follow them. 
Don't follow movement leaders. Use their resources. Hear what they have to say. Make up your own mind, but don't follow them. Follow Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't follow Jesus, right? Here's the, here's the full expression of God of perfect character, integrity, honesty, trustworthiness, selflessness, humility, kind and gracious. Of course we want to follow Jesus, right? Look at his life, always helping the poor, the sick, the lonely, the outcast, confronting political and religious injustice, always living for the benefit of other people, right? Why wouldn't we follow him? Look at the cross, the price he paid for the cause of mercy, justice, and love, loving us all to the very end, as John 13 said. Why wouldn't we follow him? And look at the power and the victory of the resurrection, that the eternal love of God cannot be trapped in a grave. It was resurrected and continues to live eternally now in us. Simply follow Jesus. And Jesus himself said what this sort of looks like and feels like. He set the culture of what it's like to follow Jesus. Listen to what he says in Matthew 16. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. So anytime we use a cross for our gain or our power, we have completely flipped the entire thing upside down. We don't know what it means to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus means I die to myself, and I live for the glory of God, and I live for the benefit of others. I die to myself. And so I will not use Jesus' name for my own benefit. I will not use Jesus' name to establish my nation's supremacy. I will not use Jesus' name to uphold my ethnicity. I will not use Jesus' name to protect our political power. To follow Jesus is to die to myself and follow Jesus to a cross, to love the world around me to the end. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you to consider three things, just to consider three things. Some of these will not be easy. First, I want to just ask you to consider quietly resigning from evangelicalism. It's my prayer that millions, maybe tens of millions of Americans are saying, I'm done. I'm finally done. Of course, I would never ask people to resign from following Jesus. I wouldn't even ask people to resign from the Christian religion. There's a lot of good in Christian religious traditions. But the evangelical movement has always been a largely political movement, and now I believe its time is up. Just resign. Quietly resign. I'm not asking you for a social media bluster. You don't need to return judgment for judgment. Don't return bitterness with bitterness. Just quietly resign. I'm out. Resign from us versus them tribalism that use God's name to justify anger towards other people. I resign from getting sucked into judgment and outrage. I resign from using God to push political party agendas. I resign from being part of a man-made religion that uses Jesus' name to coerce people into doing what they're told. I resign from getting caught up in endless doctrinal debates and moral arguments that Jesus himself never even talked about. I resign from being a political demographic to be polled, used, and manipulated by politicians or spun up in a frenzy by online influences attempting and succeeding to divide our country. I resign. Second, confidently participate in your faith community. I know there are probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, who will say, I'm done with this whole Christian thing. What a mess this obviously is, and I'm out. I cannot be associated with this. Millions will probably make that decision. I'm urging you not to be one of them. Participate in your faith community. If you are a guest here watching this, participate 
in your faith community. Even if you're a part of an evangelical faith community, there's a lot of good people there, and maybe you can do some good to help sort of change the culture of things. Confidently participate in your faith community. Hebrews says, do not forsake gathering together, because when we gather together, there's so much life and encouragement and sharpening each other and learning together as a, as a learning community, discovering God together and being equipped to advance the cause of Christ by loving the world around us. We need each other for that. And yes, it's incredibly complicated in this virus when 99% of us are separated. And yes, it's complicated when January 6th happens and, and the, the entire Christian movement is, is stained and harmed, maybe even irreparably, gotta hope not, but maybe irreparably. Confidently participate in your faith community. And finally, boldly follow Jesus. Evangelical Christianity needs to come to its close. The Christian religion needs a t reformation. But I'm telling you, Jesus, Jesus is the one to boldly follow. And everybody loves Jesus, everybody. Every faith tradition loves Jesus. We love Jesus. There's nothing not to love. Follow him boldly. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. What's gonna save this country is the love of Christ lived through us. What's gonna save the hurting people around us, and there are so many hurting people around us. What's gonna save them is the love of Christ through us. What's gonna save troubled families is the love of Christ through us. Boldly follow Jesus. He's the full expression of God. Claim Jesus as your hero. He's my hero. He went to the cross. He gave his life to help people in need, to help the suffering, to help us all understand that God's a God of love, not a God of judgment. He's my hero. And he's my role model. I want to follow him. I have not yet achieved that status. But by his grace, I want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That's what it means to follow him. He's the full expression of God. I know God through Jesus. He's my hero. And who our hero is determines how we live our lives. That has never been more obvious than this last Wednesday. Jesus is our hero. And he's my role model. And I will follow him. Let that be our prayer. Our God and Father... This is a, a heavy and dark period in United States history. And with a great deal of sadness, sorrow, and even anger, we admit that it is your church that has been largely the problem. And that's the history of the Bible. Constantly these cycles of your people failing and your people returning. And I pray that this failure would be such a wake-up call that we would, in fact, be motivated to return, to come back to the simplicity of following Jesus. He's the full expression of our Heavenly Father, full of love and grace, full of faithfulness and kindness and gentleness, full of forgiveness, serving particularly those in need around him to the very end, showing love. He's the full expression of you, our God, and we believe in him. He is our hero. What he did to bring love and kindness to the world is worth celebrating and, and putting him on that pedestal and honoring him, even worshiping him. He's our hero and he's our role model. Everything we do, everything we think, the deepest motive of our heart, we want to be aligned with Jesus Christ. We wanna follow in his steps. So God, would you give us the strength by your spirit to examine what's wrong with us, what's wrong with our faith, what's wrong with 
evangelicalism, what's wrong with this movement that many of us find ourselves in, and, and to say, I'm, I'm done, I'm resigning from that, I'm gonna participate in a faith community, and we are going to follow Jesus together, and we're gonna advance the cause of Christ through mercy, justice, and love, and we are gonna see this nation come back. We pray stronger than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen.